voor die inkomen. Bullshit. Pretend for a moment we've entered a parallel universe, free of bullshit marketing and full of bold solutions. That's what no bullshit marketing is all about. I'm your host, Dave Mastovich, and it's time to cut the bullshit. When's the last time you read a blog post, newspaper article, or email from start to finish? If we asked, how do we read today? The answer might be, we don't. Whether reading, or should I say skimming online or print, we rarely finish a story or article, and we don't move smoothly from left to right as we follow the words across the page. Eye-tracking research from web guru Jacob Nielsen shows we sweep our eyes across the page in a pattern shaped like an F. When it comes to scrolling, most people don't even bother. More than 80% of our time is spent above the fold, the part of the web page visible when users first land there, or the part above the fold of a newspaper. More than 80% of our time. How can you increase readability of your messages? Put the most important content first. Don't fumble your opening. Avoid claims and exaggerations because skimmers do. Feature bulleted lists. Focus on only one idea per paragraph. And now that you know, try to actually read other people's stuff. Our guest today is Dave Nelson, president of Dialogue Consulting Group. Dave's been named Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year and also Speaker of the Year by Vistage International. He's a successful CEO, entrepreneur, professional speaker, radio personality, author, and social media thought leader. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thrilled to be here, Dave. It's gonna be easy to remember that name. Exactly. <laughs> you have a broad and interesting background, Dave, so let's get right into it. Tell us about your career and how you came to where you are today. Well, where I am today uh, is sort of uh, uh, different. I was, I guess, one of those fish swimming upstream because we're sitting here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and yet I was born in California. And people don't move to Pittsburgh from California, they go the other way. So uh, I went backwards. I um, have a master's degree in systems engineering from Stanford. And um, turns out I got one of those random calls one day from a headhunter trying to recruit me to a little startup in Pittsburgh. It was called Four Systems. My um, youngest son was 10 days old and my mother-in-law happened to be in town. And so my wife said, ah, go talk to him. And you would have thought this was three days after Christmas. So it's December 28th, 1993. And you go inside most companies at that time, Deadsville, four was like just unbelievable mesmerizing energy. Uh, I was just sold the the first day I was there. And uh, a short story, I came in March of 94 with the plan to vest my stock options and head west. And Here I am 21 years and counting. So Pittsburgh turns out to be a surprisingly cool place to live. Let's talk about that for a second. How was that initial adjustment coming to Pittsburgh from the cultural standpoint? Well, first of all, it wasn't smoky and sooty. You know, I guess brands and reputations last a long time. And a lot of people out there still think of Pittsburgh as it was in the 40s, maybe. And of course, for any listeners who don't know, there are no steel operations, not just in Pittsburgh, but in Allegheny County anymore. And the air is beautiful. It's a nice sunny day out there. We're on the uh, intersection point of the three rivers. And, um, you know, it's fat. I came in in March and the weather's improving then. Great summer, nice fall. You sort of make it all the way through to, um, you know, after New Year's. And then the the part that kills me, and I've adjusted to this now, but um uh, like February, you don't see the sun very much. And so I don't actually mind the 
temperature. We don't get all that much snow. In fact, you know, Philly, Washington, Boston, they've been getting hammered the last few years. We haven't seen that in Pittsburgh, but the cloudiness, the grayness is a bit oppressive. So these days I do spend all of February down in Fort Myers, Florida, where it's nice and sunny. And that's the one little accommodation, but uh, 11 months of the year, it's fabulous. And the people here are fabulous. And I build software companies and Carnegie Mellon, the number one software school in the country. So we can't do better than that. A lot of stuff that touches home on the messaging standpoint. I've become frustrated over the years from a PR standpoint when I see when the Steelers are on or the Pirates are on, they show like a steel mill. And I want to say, <laughs> where'd you get that? Where'd you even get that shot? We're, we're Eds and Meds. So tell me a little bit after the four systems experience, uh, how long you were there and what did you jump to after that? Yeah. So uh, four years and a quarter, we'll call it three months. Uh, Andy Fraley and I were looking at a, um, a product that four systems really needed to produce. And our customers were asking for it. And uh, at the time, four was a public company. So it has its quarterly financials to, to meet. And it, it really couldn't invest what would be needed to build such a product. And so with the sort of um, blessing of the, the management team there, Andy and I went off and started co-manage. And three months after we left, so we, we left on July 4th of 1998, so Independence Day, uh, by October 7th. And I remember these dates because that's my birthday. I had a $4.3 million check in hand to start beginning to build co-manage. Funded right here in town. Again, people don't think about venture capital, but uh, Joel Adams and uh, Adams Capital, uh, Sean Sebastian, and Birchmere Ventures. Uh, we've got a bunch of them here. Both of those were in my company. And uh, of course, there's Draper Triangle, et cetera, et cetera. So there's actually money to be had for great ideas. And we were off to the races there in 1998. We sold that company by 2005. And that's what got me into social media. So tell us a little bit from 2005. Well, okay. So we, we sold Comanage. We, we raised a total of $62 million. And when you do that, you're racing to build value and then find an exit. And so that's how it goes. You don't run a venture funded company forever. You either go public, which we weren't going to do, or you, you sell it to somebody who can take it to the next level and exit your investors. So in 2005, I was thinking about what am I going to do next? And I had this idea. I'm from the telecom space. That's where I've lived, internet or, or telephony network my whole life one way or the other. And I had this idea that you know, eBay was making a pile of money by connecting people that wanted to trade a product. What if you could connect people that wanted to trade information? And uh, that would be a, um, a teleconference bridge where people could um, control it. So whoever was the host of the, uh, the internet radio show or podcast, if you like, uh, they would have control to mute and unmute callers. And you could have up to 300 people come in. And of course, there's a chat so you can talk to people before you put them live on the air. So you can, you know, see what they want to talk about. And so I had this idea. And, uh, I uh, put together a team here in Pittsburgh with about 15 really sharp, mostly software engineers. And we built this thing over the course of a little bit more than a year. And as I remember, it must have been around May of 2006 that we launched TalkShoe. And today, a couple million people use that every month. And there have been uh, hundreds of thousands of episodes of podcasts recorded using that neat little TalkShoe service that we built and run right here in Pittsburgh. These are some amazing stories, Dave, and I want to come back to a lot of them because we'll tie back to the messaging you used when you kicked those companies off. But let's go to the 
That's BS segment. So this is the No Bullshit Marketing Show, and I want to talk about how we've all seen, or I guess I often joke, maybe smelled it, and that's bullshit in the workplace. And so give me an example from the past when you just kind of shook your head, and it could be something related to a company culture, questionable leadership, poor work ethic, a time when you just had to say that's BS. Well, uh, I guess the reason I was open to coming to Pittsburgh back in 1994 was I had joined Bell Labs straight out of school at Stanford and, you know, worked in the the trenches of Bell Labs, which is like one of the greatest places on earth. But then I moved into the business unit side of of AT&T and it's this giant corporate bureaucracy where, you know, there must have been 17 levels of management above me that existed to basically slow down, slow down or kill ideas. And so um, when I when I first was tempted to come to four because I saw this kind of energy and you could actually make things happen, I was still thinking that I was going to go back to AT&T because, you know, I was on there. They have this uh, special executive development program. They call it Leadership Continuity Program or LCP. They'd sent me to Penn State to do an executive MBA one summer. I mean, it, it seemed cool at a lot of levels. And when you're inside the corporate bureaucracy and it's the only thing you've ever known, you don't really know that there's a better way. So I took the job at four thinking, you know, this will be good career development. I'll go back to AT&T and maybe skip up a couple levels in a couple of years. And maybe three weeks into the job at four, it's like I am never going back to a super large company like that because they they move too slowly. They're too bureaucratic. There's too many layers of management. And I think history bore this out. AT&T more or less, uh, before it was put back together again, uh, came apart and... Um, yeah, I, I uh, love being an entrepreneur and making things happen. I share your explanation there. I grew up going through that corporate ladder and being with big companies and very structured. And the one point you said that's so true is you just don't know. So you have this misperception that the company has to be a certain size. And like when I was at UPMC in senior management, a $5 million a year company, to me, I didn't even process that that could be great, that that could have talented people, that that could have strong leadership, because you just have that misperception, like you're saying, when you're in that corporate environment, you don't know any better. And by the way, these small companies, it, you'd always think as a small company, you know, oh my gosh, AT&T has unbelievable resources. I could never compete against them. They move way too slowly. And that's why Things like Skype didn't come from AT&T. Things like Facebook didn't come from AT&T. I mean, a lot of the best innovations, the real disruptive ones, come from some guy in a dorm room who puts together a great uh, team of engineers and, and maybe one person who knows how to market it. By the way, you, you reminded me, there's an old saying that if you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door. Biggest lie in history. Right, because it misses sales and marketing and what you have to do to succeed, even with a great product. Love it. So let's put you on the spot. Talk about a learning experience from your past when maybe there was a time where you might have been a BS market or maybe your communication wasn't where it needed to be. Or maybe just you're, you weren't a fit and so you came across looking like a difficult employee. Looking back, when do you think you might have been guilty of some BS? Well, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I'll give you a great example. I, at AT&T, became a, a product manager at one point with no 
particular training and what a product manager does. Now, for people not familiar with product management, the idea of uh, product manager and maybe the classic w would be at a consumer products like uh, P&G or something. But a product manager has to look at uh, what is the um, the competitive landscape out there? You know, where is there room for a new product? Who are the customers who are wanting it? And, um, you know, one of the challenges of the job is all things are possible. There's too many, I'd say, degrees of freedom. And I think I was a pretty bad product manager because what, what makes a bad product manager is uh, listening to the, the loudest customer or the noisiest salesperson about what's needed. And then you, you put features into your product or service to accommodate that particular customer. I'm being customer driven. Well, that's actually wrong. I have come to conclude, looking back on it all these years later and having seen two great product managers since, you know, 20 some years ago, what a product manager has to do is, is look at the market, look at where there are segments of customers, groups of customers with like requirements that can be served in a cost effective way where the competitive uh, uh, battle is, is not intense. And if you can find those market segments and build good products for them, then you can succeed with your uh, with your products or services. The resources to evolve your products and services are among the scarcest resources, the tightest constraints in your company. And so these are really important decisions and most people do it poorly. They listen to that, you know, that sales guy who's yelling about that next deal or the, the customer who's yelling about a problem. And I, I have come to believe you should not be customer driven, you should be market driven. And you need to look at that larger market and the entire competitive space. Great point about the vocal minority having too much influence because they're not really the norm. The person that is complaining the most often has uh, self-interest at heart, especially when you give the sales example. And what we talk about with marketing is we say it starts off with clearly defining those target markets and then going out and finding what they want through marketing intel, but not through just one person, going out right. and talking to your different segments and finding out what they want. And then if you don't have it the way they want to do what you did, tweak it. But there has to be some intel behind why you tweaked it and gave it to them when and where they wanted a price they're willing to pay and then tell them about it again and again and again. Right. Or sometimes you say no to a particular prospect because, you know, any customer or prospect, they have their own interests and needs in mind. That doesn't mean it's the best thing for you as a business. And so I think one of the challenges is figuring out who you serve and who you don't serve. And that's a really hard thing to say no and to walk away from business. But uh, if you don't make priority calls about where you're focusing your resources and where the larger segments are, uh, you're underperforming as a company. We both have uh, learned a lot from peak performance and Sandler sales. And I love Sandler sales. And one of the things that I tell my team here, and they'll look at me kind of crazy as I say, Sean Coyle used to always say to me, get to know quickly. And it means find out if they're a prospect yeah. or not. Get to the answer no quickly because you can move on. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, uh, I do a lot of work these days in social media. And since you brought up Sandler, you know, they have this making a sale is a six step process, the yes. Sandler submarine. And step one is, you know, finding points of rapport to build trust. I think with a podcast or a blog or running a good LinkedIn group, it doesn't really matter the medium. 
but uh, people feel like they get to know you. That's one of the wonderful things about what we're doing right here. It builds relationships. It builds trust with the listeners. Of course, they can comment and they can review and they can, uh, you know, ask questions. Uh, it's a it's a really neat tool for building trust at a scale we've never had before. So what I love about social media is now I've got a much bigger funnel on that step one of Sandler. That, that's true. One of the things that is compelling, I'm going to be interested to see which one you choose because you've done real marketing throughout your career at these various companies that you built and turned into something huge, something successful, something that reached and influenced that target market the way they wanted to be reached and influenced. So what is your biggest marketing success following that definition that you said where you go out and define that market and figure out what you want to do and not listen to the vocal minority? Which one of those were your biggest marketing success? Yeah. So uh, first of all, one of the things I think that's helped me immensely is I started out as an engineer. I really understand the, the technical details of the internet or the telecom network or, you know, whatever product, you know, because I, I think like an engineer and yet I, I'm able to communicate to people who are non-engineers without being too geeky, um, not the features, but the benefits, right? And one of the things that I always remember about marketing is marketing is not about us. Marketing is about them. They're trying to achieve something. They don't care about you per se. And so I'm not going to show up with, you know, here's my products and here's my services. I, I hate it when a sales guy shows up and he's he or she has their deck of 150 PowerPoint slides they want to go through. And by the way, they're horrible bullets and all words. Uh, we always called that show up and throw up. Um, really, I like the idea of, you know, let's find out what your challenges are. What are your objectives? I want to put myself into the mind of the customer. And then if I've got a solution that can help you get there, we're going to do business. So marketing is not about us. That's one of the most important things that I've ever learned. Vistage. International is the largest CEO organization in the world, and there are groups of 15 to 18 CEOs that have a chairperson, and they bring in speakers every month, and there's thousands of speakers that they get to choose from, and they bring them in from all across the nation, and Dave won the Vistage International Speaker of the Year, and I've heard you speak, and it, you walk away with tremendous amount of information that you can actually use. As a CEO walking out of that, meaning you can come back and give that information to your company. Talk about your Vistage speaking experience because that to me is an amazing achievement to win Speaker of the Year out of all those thousands of speakers. Yeah, anyone who's ever been to a Vistage meeting will tell you that the speakers are amazing and there's like 1,500 of them, which is just unbelievable on every topic under the, under the sun. So I think what helped me really be a good Vistage speaker was the, well, it's sort of two ideas. I want to give you something that is immediately actionable in your business, and I want to be entertaining at the same time. And if I can do those two things, I can hold your attention, be entertaining, fun, funny, maybe play some videos and uh, give you something you can put to work tomorrow, then that's a win. And, you know, here's an example of what I mean by that. Every day, half of all internet traffic starts with a search. Half of all traffic starts with a search. That's pretty amazing. And by the way, uh, half of that starts on a mobile device. So we got to look at people are out there looking for what we do. They've never heard our name, but they're looking for what we do. They're typing some keywords into mostly Google. And um, how do you get found 
when they're looking for what you do. And part of the trick is you've got to figure out what words they search for. Most people, when they build their websites, they just they describe themselves as however they want to describe themselves. They don't think about the search behavior. And so I introduce people to a tool called the Google Keyword Planner. And you can say for any geography, hey, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania or Sacramento, California, how often does somebody search for uh, high alloy tubing? And Google will tell you the answer in any geography. And you've got to figure out which words are searched most often. If half the traffic is going to start tomorrow with a search, how about we use these words? So I show people how to find what's being searched, and then I'll show them how to optimize their website or their content. And on that one, there's three easy rules. Use your keywords in your titles, in the page addresses or URLs as they're called, and the first hundred words of content. So I focus on things like that that are pretty easy to understand, powerful, important ideas that you can put to work tomorrow in your business. We're talking with Dave Nelson, author, speaker, entrepreneur, CEO of Dialogue Consulting. You've walked us through your four systems experience, co-manage. You talked a little bit about TalkShoe and Vistage International. I'm assuming you were talking there a little bit about Dialogue Consulting. Yeah, I do. I help companies. Both I do a lot of professional paid presentations, as I did uh, this morning. And tomorrow I'll be off in Philadelphia doing another group. Uh, heading to the UK for two weeks at the end of this month. So uh, be my second tour of duty through uh, England and Wales and Scotland and so on. So um, yeah, I do a lot of that with Dialogue Consulting and help companies formulate their social media strategies. And um, there, I'll tell you the most important question. It's not, should we be on Facebook or should we be tweeting on Twitter? My most important question for anyone doing social media is, who is your target audience? And now be brutally honest, what could you do that's valuable for them, right? This gets back to marketing is not about us. So if you can come up with an answer to that question, and most businesses don't even try, well, you can get their attention, you can get them engaged, and then you have the chance to convert some of them to customers. So you really have to think about what could we do of value to our target audience. Often it's educational, but sometimes it's entertainment or you're involved in some kind of community cause. People love to connect and save the world. That's how ALS raised $115 million last year in five months. Unbelievable. The ice bucket challenge, if you haven't uh, seen that. So uh, I help companies develop their strategies and apply these ideas to, uh, to connecting with their target audience. And you've got to figure out what would be valuable for them. Otherwise, why would they devote their time and attention to you, in which case you're wasting your time posting on Facebook or Twitter or what have you. In fact, I don't even pick which tool I'm going to use until I've answered five other questions. So many businesses just say, oh, let's get Facebook so we can check the box. And uh, I think that's, that's putting the cart in front of the horse. I think this is pretty valuable for our audience because we talk a lot about asking what's the big idea. Because when it comes to messaging, we have to understand both our why our reason for being and our customers, why their reason for buying. And that's what you're kind of talking about. And then you crystallize that into one big idea, one memorable message or theme that makes an emotional impact on our target audiences. So for dialogue consulting, then you kind of touch on this, but what is the big idea then? Okay. Well, first of all, I boiled it down into uh, four words. Um, I, I'm a believer in taglines and USPs, unique selling propositions. And so I say, uh, we socialize, you capitalize. And what it really is about is helping companies understand how to connect to their 
most important target audiences. And um, I, you know, I've done that now for about a hundred different organizations so that they're, uh, you know, we think about social media as marketing, but here's just a little bit of a counterintuitive thought for you. McKinsey Consulting, we all know that big firm, they did a study, maybe going back about a year and a half ago. And what they concluded is these tools, these social media tools that are more efficient for some of our communication challenges, the, the bigger application might be among employees to improve collaboration. And so they're estimating, in fact, that while maybe one third of the value of social media is in marketing, two-thirds of the value is in enhanced collaboration and communication within the enterprise. And if you think about it, yeah, Facebook is great for connecting people all over the world and they're keeping up with each other and sharing and learning. But what if that were just your employee team? That's a pretty intriguing idea. Of course, now we have a whole class of products that's being built in this space. So Yammer, which Microsoft has purchased, uh, 200,000 businesses use that. Salesforce.com has a competitor to that called Chatter. These are, you know, employee sort of group texting, Twitter-like, but they're private. And maybe one of the hottest companies on the planet right now, uh, a company that utterly failed in the product they were trying to build, but they had created a communication system for their employees uh, called Slack. They put that out on the web, 8,000 companies downloaded in the first 24 hours, and then, Kleiner Perkins, Google Ventures, and Andreessen Horowitz showed up with venture capital to fund these guys at Slack. So that might be one of the hottest uh, companies on the planet. So I think we need to be investigating not just how we use these tools that I've been talking about for marketing, but also improving collaboration among employees. Dave, just an amazing guest. You gave us so much information tools, tips, ideas, but also inspiration about how you tackle life and how you tackle the work part of your life and also making it about them. So I want to thank you for being here today. Hey, and we didn't even talk about my home wine making, the Tough Mudder I just finished a week ago, my organic gardening. So uh, there's just so much good, fun stuff to talk to. But it was a real pleasure to be on the podcast with you today, Dave. It gives me an excuse to have you back. Thank you, Dave Nelson. And thank you for joining us for No Bullshit Marketing. Visit BoldSolutionsNoBS.com for show notes, plus additional marketing and messaging resources. Also, sign up for Light Reading. You'll receive valuable strategies every other week to improve your marketing and transform your message. It really is light, intended to be read in two minutes or less, and it just might trigger bright ideas for you. To sign up, go to MassSolutions.biz. Remember, ask yourself, what's the big idea? And build your story around the answer. It's all about bold solutions without the BS.